of you for coming. I'm going to go ahead and kick us off. I thank all of you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today we move into 3.7. The, one sec, oh God, I moved past the page. The Barbarian or Imperial Representation. Uh, not going to do any major announcements today. Just going to push us a little bit towards... Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. All right. Uh, with that, I think I'll go ahead and uh, push forward, and we'll go ahead and begin reading 3.7, Barbarian or Imperial Representation. Uh, before we dive in, remember, we have moved into the despotic, uh, talking through the way that it has co-opted the affiliative and the alliance, uh, the way that the despot operates, takes on the uh, the last few lines are worth reading, and then I'll dive right in. Uh, the to read come on text thank you um this infinitivization cannot be understood exactly as nietzsche would have it that is as a consequence of the interplay of ancestors profound genealogies and extended filiations rather when these are short-circuited abducted by the new alliance and direct filiation then the ancestor the master of the mobile and finite blocks finds himself dismissed by the deity, the immobile organizer of bricks and their infinite circuit. Now, finally, moving on. Incest with the sister and incest with the mother are very different things. The sister is not a substitute for the mother. The one belongs to the connective category of alliance, the other to the disjunctive category of filiation. Incest with the sister is prohibited insofar as the conditions of territorial coding require that alliance not be confounded with filiation, and incest with the mother, insofar as decent uh, descent within filiation, must not be allowed to interfere with ascending lines. That is why the despot's incest is twofold, by virtue of the new alliance and direct filiation. He begins by marrying the sister, but he enters into this forbidden endogamous marriage outside the tribe, inasmuch as he is himself outside his tribe, on the outside or at the outer limits of territory. This is what Pierre Gordon showed in his strange book, the same rule that prescribes incest must prescribe it for certain persons. Exogamy must result in the position of men outside the tribe, for who their part are entitled to an endogamous marriage, and are able, by virtue of this formidable right, to serve as initiators to exogamous subjects of both sexes, the sacred deflowerer, the ritual initiator on the mountain on or across the waters, the wilderness, land of betrothal, all the floaths converge on a man such as this. All the alliances find themselves countersected by this new alliance that overcodes them. Endogamous marriage outside the tribes, the outside the tribe places the hero in a position to overcode all the endogamous marriages in the tribe. <sighs> There's a lot in this opening passage right away. Um, does anyone want to take a first crack and start somewhere? Because there's just a lot. I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, at this point, we're now breaking down the affiliative and the alliance and the way that the despot has played with them. Uh, again, to go back to the way the affiliative and the alliance was during the uh, the, the primitive times, uh, it was directly the conjunctive or disjunctive. Uh, we're page number two hundred. Um, 
I, I'm also, I will share the screen. Apologies that I haven't been doing that. Um, as you can read right along with me. Um, uh, previously, we talked about how the alliance and the affiliative uh, function in the primitive of how uh, society sort of organized the various flows of uh, my desires. So I have my affiliative, which is my direct family, the I'm born to or born of uh, this lineage, and we make our alliances with other people in the tribe, other groups, or tribe to tribe based on my sister and who she marries. Uh, it's a, this is a male-centric view, by the way, holy. Um, the, the nature of this sort of descent or ascent or the alliances are the sort of think of it as the two axes with which uh, we're able to start seeing how power is disruptive and plays inside of these spaces as we move to the despotic or the barbarian or imperial representation they break and they break the two uh, very cleanly into lines first we're going to talk in this paragraph talks specifically about uh, incest with the sister now uh, it's not directly, literally talking about just incest with the sister, but instead talking through the nature of how alliant lines all ultimately, again, come back to this despot, this single hero, this this godhead who's the one who's in charge of it. The phrasing that they use, as I understand it, and again, this is all my interpretation from the last time we went through this and re-listening to that, um, very particularly, the line that they use is, he begins by marrying the sister. This is not his sister. It's not a sister. It's not your sister. It's the sister. The The nature of the representation of my alliances. Again, the sister is, uh, in the, the uh, primitive, she's the method with which my family is able to maintain and grow relationships with other tribes, other families, other lineages. So we have vertically, mom begets son or daughter, beget son or daughter, beget son or daughter lineage. Uh, but how we work with people is based on who my sister is able to marry, how I'm able to marry someone else's sister and bring her to my group, this this back and forth. And the, the despot uh, owns this, takes this completely, and uh, wholly owns marrying the sister. And that language is very particular. That's my, that's my sort of uh, top line of this paragraph. Is that generally how you guys read it? Anyone have any thoughts, addendums? So I'm reading um, uh, Homo Sacker, uh, and he, he mentions this idea that uh, the way sovereignty is defined is by who gets to control, like, the exception uh, to the rule. Like, whatever the, the law is, the sovereign is the person who can make an, an exception to uh, the law. Is that related in that sort of the despotic machine is, like, the 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 despot is the one who's able to violate the one uh taboo incest like might those uh ideas be related somehow i i think they're they're spot on i wouldn't even say it's so much even that he violates the taboo but the exception of the taboo is what makes the taboo solid uh because i homo a wonderful book that very much is making that point that it's not that the exception is a thing that breaks the rule it's that the exception makes the rule uh that without such an exception and having it be blanket the rule would be effectively meaningless uh it, you need you need options for that you need for murder to be illegal you need to have moments where it's not if it was just flat out always illegal the law suddenly becomes completely meaningless uh in terms of what it what it does sort of with things and the the taboo goes with that the bataille 
ex writes exceptionally on this in Erotism, which we were doing a reading of. Uh, the, the way that taboos function and the exception to that is the thing that makes the taboo uh, acceptable, especially with sex or death, which is what erotism is primarily about, uh, at least. So I'd say, I'd say spot on. And so uh, Ken asks, uh, what accompanies filiative, uh, the other alliance? We'll get to that. The filiative comes next because that's fucking the mother or incest with the mother, not the sister. This is specifically about the sister. Um, uh, so it's it's directly about alliance at this point. And that's the line, uh, uh, how to say, uh, the same rule that prescribes incest must prescribe it, proscribes incest must prescribe it for certain persons. Uh, all the flows, and this is of alliance, converge on a man such as this. All the alliances find themselves countersected by this new alliance that overcodes them. Uh, it, it would think about it as the, the despot, whoever he marries, is effectively the sister to everyone. Uh, the, the prince comes along. The prince is going to be our new ruler. Let's talk. We're back in despotic times. And the prince, it has been decided that he will marry the, the princess of France. Uh, that is the, the sister. All of our sister, if we're French, the French sister is being married to our son our our ruler and so because of that that alliance is sealed in a singular place it overcodes all the other flows whereas before it was i have like two or three sisters and i mean not to talk about them like they're cattle but that is kind of what this is it's oh oh well she's gonna marry this guy i've got this other one and we'll figure it out with this complex arrangement uh the the despotic singularizes it down and now when the the king of blank place x comes to marry the princess she is our sister like the the royal we our sister and by marrying her off our alliance is sealed there now in that case also she's his sister too uh when you start considering how alliances are formed and set up so it's a uh, it's gross uh, but it's 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 the way to think about how alliances are formed under this new type of representation and uh, new new way of doing things with the power structure. Does that make sense, Ken? Yeah, it's almost like there's an exogamous incest and an endogamous incest. Yes. Uh, insofar as the sister thing. Um, but it's interesting that it said the hero begins by marrying the sister, then he marries the mother. So they're almost saying that the exogamous is, is primary process or something let's die they say the the despot's incest is twofold first virtue of the new alliance and then direct affiliation he begins by marrying the sent sister but he enters into this forbidden endogamous marriage outside the tribe and as much as he is himself outside the tribe on the outside of the outer limits and then they go through and blah blah um uh and then the next step is the incest with the mother is a different meaning a different setup here and actually i'm going to read that paragraph so we can dive straight into it uh, it is clear that incest with the mother has a completely different meaning. This time it is a question of the mother of the tribe as she exists in the tribe as the hero finds her in penetrating the tribe or finds her again in returning to the tribe after his first marriage. He countersects the extended filiations with a direct filiation. The initiated or initiating hero becomes king. The second marriage develops the consequences of the first. It draws out the effects of the first. The hero begins by marrying the sister, then he marries the mother. The fact that the two acts can, 
to varying degrees, be bound together, assimilated, does not rule out the existence of two sequences of, in the phenomenon, the union with the princess sister and the union with the mother queen. Incest goes by twos. The hero is always sitting aside two groups, the one where he leaves to find his sister, the other where he returns to find his mother again. The purpose of this double incest is not to produce a flow, not even a magic flow, but to overcode all the existing flows and to ensure that no intrinsic code, no underlying flow escapes the overcoding of the despotic machine. Hence, it is by virtue of his sterility that he guarantees the general fecundity. The marriage with the sister is on the outside. It is the wilderness ordeal. It expresses the spatial divergence from the primitive machine. It provides the old alliances with an outcome. It founds the new alliance by affecting a generalized appropriation of all of the alliance debts. The marriage with the mother is the return to the tribe. It expresses the temporal divergence from the primitive machine, the difference between the generations. It constitutes the direct filiation that results from this new alliance by affecting a generalized accumulation of filiative stock. Both marriages are essential to the overcoating as the two ends of a tie for the despotic knot. So, uh, to go back to your question, Ken, uh, it's the marriage to the princess and then the queen are seen essentially as two, one being the alliant and one being the filiative. There, we are talking about ultimately the same marriage. It's, it's, kings may get married a bunch of times, but we are talking about the princess being married and then the queen existing. The queen mother, uh, which is not a term that I'm making up here, uh, is essentially the filiative originator of, for all of us, uh, including the despot, but also the fact that it's, <laughs> it's also the princess and his sister. So suddenly incest becomes possible to him because it changes the alliant and the affiliative structure of all of society to be f sort of through him as that central axis. Yeah. It's like the, it's like, um, the despot's no is the nail around which the knot forms mm. or the possibility of no. Right. Hmm. I like or that. Or an exclusion or something. He... So is it then like in in a Nietzschean way that he, uh, the despot, um, is expanding his reach uh, or his grasp through uh, this this uh, expansion of of power by taking an outside uh, princess, so to speak, brings it back by by that uh, securing his. Um, affiliative line and uh, then he has to integrate himself through uh, again in this territory because he left he exited uh, and uh, he has to um, go back and reintegrate himself through the symbolic uh, um, yeah uh, incest with the mother to to make it the queen of the people that's that's how I read it, where it's, uh, and that's why they divide the marriage into twos. The first thing he does is he marries the princess, but he doesn't do so in the tribe, or it's not the same setup. He's, he, because he exists necessarily outside of the tribe, uh, or all the tribes, ultimately, he exists in kind of this other place. Um, his marriage to the princess exists outside of that as well, and his return, his sort of 
you know, re-territorialization, if you will, uh, as he comes back, uh, that second marriage is the moment when he as the king and she as the queen is recognized as the queen mother. And that sort of secures that filiative line. It's the, the, the double sort of action that happens here. It's the line they have here. The marriage with the sister is on the outside. It is the wilderness ordeal, the spatial divergence from the primitive machine. It provides the old alliances with an outcome. It founds a new alliance by effecting a generalized appropriation of all the alliance debt. But then the marriage with the mother is the return to the tribe. It expresses the temporal divergence with the primitive machine, the difference between the generations. It constitutes the direct filiation that results from a new alliance by affecting a generalized accumulation of filiative stock. Those two elements, again, the original uh, alliant and then the filiative, is that processual nature of what these things and how they actually operate. Uh, Remcast, are they one in the same marriage, just from different parts of the process? Yeah, yes, we're talking about. We're not talking about a king who gets married ninety times. Uh, it's it's literally talking about the fact that this one marriage really isn't one marriage. I mean, you could say this essentially about almost every marriage that uh, there's there's multiple stages to it. But very specifically here, there's the first marriage which happens outside of the tribe, which is alliant and secures the the overcodes the flows of debt between them uh, and sort of seals that. And that happens outside of the tribe necessarily. And then the second step, which is another marriage, which is when he returns, it takes on all, it, it creates sort of this, this uh, accumulation of filiative stock when he comes back and he's, marries the, he's married to the queen now. And now you as a subject, a political subject in this world, now you have a queen, you have a mom, you have a filiative direct thing. Yeah, it's the, so that's Ben. Ben nails it. It's, so it simplifies it. Oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. Ben Ben just nailed it perfectly. The prince marries the princess, and then the king and queen are married. That's he's spot on. That's a really nice way to put it because it's not. It, they're they're different things despite being the same person. They're different full bodies. Ken, go ahead. I'm just so sorry to cut you off. I just um, so this is the first paralogism, right? So the despot inserts the signifier of lack, and then the signified are these meanings that you're getting out of it that you were just talking about, the the, the queen and the princess and whatnot. I, yes. I mean, again, to go back to the thing we were discussing at the end of last week, uh, their big argument here in all of this is, and continue to look for it, they spent the first part of the book talking about how the unconscious works, but this is not just how the unconscious works. There's a there's an underlying sort of function and process that all things really undergo. And so when we're talking about, you know, the conjunctive or the disjunctive, there's a reason that they utilize those terms that are mirroring the different parts of the process of the unconscious and the machinic sort of nature of it. Uh, you have the, I think the conjunctive is uh, the alliant and then the disjunctive is the filiative. And, uh, through that, desire is molded and built and things are recorded. And this is the process of things, even at a societal level, uh, not just in the unconscious. 100%, that's what they're driving back at. And we'll get to that. I want to dive next paragraph because I think it's, it's a good one. Um, a pause seems in order here. While we ask how such a thing is possible, how is it that incest has become possible and not only possible, but the manifest property and seal of the despot. Who 
Who is this sister, this mother, the sister and mother of the despot himself? Or should this question be framed in a different way? For it concerns the whole system of representation when it ceases to be territorial and becomes imperial. First of all, we have the impression that the elements of the in-depth system of representation have begun to move. The cellular migration has begun that will carry the Oedipal cell from one locus of representation to another. In the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced represented of desire to becoming the repressing representation itself. For there can be no doubt, this way the despot has of committing incest and of making it possible in no way involves removing the apparatus of social and psychic repression. On the contrary, the despot's intervention forms part of the apparatus. It changes only the parts of the machine, yet it is still as the displaced represented that incest now comes to occupy the position of the repressing representation. Another gain in the sum of repression, a new economy in the repressive, repressing apparatus, a new mark, a new severity. It would be easy, too easy, if it were enough to make incest possible, and to implement this in sovereign fashion, so that the exercise of psychic repression and the service of social repression would be made to end. The royal barbarian incest is merely the means to overcode the flows of desire, certainly not a means to liberate them. O Caligula, O Heliogabulus, O mad memory of vanished emperors, incest never having been the desire, but merely its displaced represented as it results from psychic repression. Social repression has everything to gain when, it in, when incest comes to take the place of the representation itself, and in this capacity take charge of the repressing function. That is what we have already seen in psychosis, where the intrusion of the complex into consciousness, according to the traditional criterion, did not, to be sure, alleviate the repression of desire. With incest's new position in the imperial formation, we are therefore speaking only of a migration in the in-depth elements of representation, which will render the latter more foreign, more ruthless, more definitive, or more infinite with respect to desiring production. But this migration would never be possible if there did not occur, correlatively, a considerable change in the other elements of representation, those elements that operate on the surface of the inscribing socius. Is it worth going back over maybe the repressed representative and all that? Um, or should we just jump straight to the nature of social production underneath the despot and how it sort of functions? Because I think we could spend hours uh, doing both of these uh, without actually even coming close really to touching on significant parts of it. Um, I mean, let's start with this. For those of you who weren't with us last time, where would you, where is your question? What question do you want to start with? Because uh, I'm, I'm looking up my explanation for the displaced represented and all of that, which is a whole fucking thing. Um, but where, where are your questions? Let's start with that. I would start with, uh, at least that's what comes to my mind first, because he, uh, both of them are starting with this. 
is how this is related uh, to the manifest property and the seal uh, of the despot. Because it, to me, it seems that um, this this concern, uh, um, that concern of the whole system of representation with this movement from the territorial to the imperial, means to me that is it is not uh, only a representation of a specific field uh, where uh, the social can move. But it is this constant referring back to the despot, to his uh, imperial representation that needs to be in every aspect of uh, this this rule, because he's, uh, as we uh, saw before, overcoding every flow within his reach through this, so to speak, power of uh, incest. He's able to create through this this self-referentiality um, the 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 moments of um, constant reference to himself. So he's not allowing um, something to develop beyond his reach because he is trying to integrate everything in his um, in his uh, field of power. Well, that's that's very uh, not. Uh, Deleuzean and Guattarian, I would say, because um, I, I'm very much struggling with with uh, their their jargon here too. Uh, so I have to translate it into uh, something else to even make sense of it. Well, of course, of course. Yeah, the uh, he says that the um, uh, the cellular migration has begun that will carry the Oedipal cell from one locus of representation to another. Is this the beginning of the airport complex? It's the, the wording you're using. I want to be real specific. This is where we're starting to see the pieces of the Oedipus complex really come to formation. I would hesitate to say this is the beginning of the Oedipus complex because I don't think that they necessarily believe in that type of genealogy of things that, oh, here's the moment where it started, but instead these pieces uh, collapse and form and new pieces grab together. And then at some point the Oedipus uh, complex comes into formation, but here are all the different pieces they're laying out as they've talked through the filiative, the alliant, uh, and then now they're getting into the way that the displaced represented of desire uh, ultimately becomes the repressing representation itself. Uh, this is another one of those sort of early pieces of this that I think I would say is the early parts and start of it. Yes. Does that make more sense? I'm, I'm trying to be very careful about how I say that because I don't want to like steer in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I think I'm going to read uh, uh, straight from Holland here because I think he explains it pretty nicely. Uh, if you haven't, uh, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus Introduction to Schizoanalysis by Eugene Holland. Fantastic guide to this. I reference it all the time. Uh, since subject peoples now owe their despot everything, he has thereby gained the right of access to all women indiscriminately, regardless of their former lineage or erstwhile alliance obligations. The despot is in principle everyone's father, but equally everyone's son, brother, spouse. Uh, the, the thing to sort of talk through here, when we talk about debts, as we talked about them before in the primitive, and now that we're talking about the alliances and uh, the affiliative lines all coming through the despot, when we say that the despot is now owned everything, that debt is infinite, we are talking about actually the sort of dismantling of all other debts as well. Uh, so regardless of 
you know, what one family owes another or what one woman's debt is to a man she was going to marry or vice versa. The despot overrules all of that. It doesn't, you plan as much as you want, the despot gets whatever he wants. Uh, to continue, the despot is in principle everyone's father, but equally everyone's son, brother, spouse. Hence the figure of incest, which had appeared as a mere afterimage of positive marriage inducements under savagery, now becomes in a sense ubiquitous and inevitable, if only symbolically, with the new alliance and direct filiation relations of despotism. But such incest is the exclusive prerogative of the despot. The right to incest is a power that sets him completely apart from ordinary mortals. One result is that incest in this royal or despotic form is no longer the displaced representative desire, but has become the repressing representation itself. Taking that quote. Imperial relations of anti-production are based on caste distinctions that separate the despot and his court retainers or state bureaucrats from everyone else. Incest now appears taboo for ordinary people, precisely because it is the prerogative of the despot. Royal incest is still not yet the incest of every man's psychoanalytic Oedipus complex, though we are getting closer, for this form of incest exercises its mode of repression not by universally forbidding it, but by making it licit for the despot alone within a system of rigid caste distinctions. The position of the despot, then, in a literal sense, is an enviable one. He concentrates in his person the function of anti-productive expenditure for the entire empire and all its peoples, and exercises the right of eminent domain over everything they produce and reproduce. We'll get more into that, but this is uh, sort of leading towards that, I think, pretty nicely. Did that kind of answer, uh, JK? Because I know I was hoping to fully answer that. I'm still getting to the displaced representative. I'm trying to find my good explanation. So it seems like what was uh, at once, at uh, one time, a, a social, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, kind of uh, activity that becomes, um, gradually becomes a um, a formation or a uh, a practice. And later on, it, be, it, it becomes um, a psychological, you know, imprint of uh, onto the unconscious. I think that has to do with the... So we'll, we'll jump to the paralogism of displacement, uh, which is a whole critique of representation in and of itself. Um, when, the, when they start having the discussion around the three terms, and they're really fun because I, they just sound the same to me, and it took me forever to understand this, and I don't even know if I do at this point. Um, we have the repressing representation, the displaced represented, and then uh, the repressed representative. Uh, all of this comes from essentially an edict of don't do a thing. Uh, so it's uh, we don't don't do Oedipus, don't fuck your mom. Uh, this this prohibition uh, against incest uh, is the thing that is prohibited. Is the thing we want now. How, how does this happen? How does this come to be? Because uh, you know, sort of the the argument they're making is that Oedipus isn't a priori as being humans. It's not something that's innate to us. It's something that is not determinate. It's something we are, we learn or we are shown over time or that representation creates within us. The method that they do this is through the paralogism of displacement where uh, we have on one side, let's say the signifier of the prohibition, uh, incest, the bad thing, the naughty, naughty. That's the repressing representation. It is a repression. It is a representation of things that we should not be doing. 
It's a repressing representation. That's why they use the phrase. They're trying to simplify. Uh, that when that gets in, like jumps into your unconscious or the machinic nature of it, it creates another signified. That signified is the displaced represented. Now this, this why they call it the, the displaced is because it is a distorted image of the thing you want. It isn't uh, literally the thing because that's not how representation works. Instead, it's this image or this element, uh, this, this signified that is like, oh, well, that's what I wanted. Uh, the, the example that they give and their arguments for this, which I find very convincing during the primitive socius, is the idea that uh, people don't really have sisters or mothers as we know them or as Freud knew them during uh, the era he lived in, that during such a time, uh, the relations of mother-son, it's not one-to-one. -one. Large groups raised children, and, and they, often they were breastfed by aunts, uncles, non-related people, grandparents, whatever it may be. It, your relationship with your mom isn't the same as it was. So they didn't really have mom, so how could they have Oedipus, don't fuck your mom? Well, the moment you say to someone, don't fuck your mom, at that point, you've actually not only introduced them the concept or the representation of mom, but also that they shouldn't do it. And so now you have this signified, this displaced represented. And this is a huge problem because this becomes the Oedipus complex. This is this distorted image of desire. Now, underneath all of this, is desire continuing to flow? Not like desire doesn't just like go, oh, cool, that's not, like desire is still going in there. And they call it, I think at some point, like a trap. I prefer to think of it as uh, sort of flowing underneath, uh, uh, getting stuck because they use the term uh, refoulement, uh, which uh, is also used for the backing up of pipes or sewage, which I like as a visual. And this last bit, that what happens is actual repression isn't just this desire that I wanna fuck my mom. Now all of this is trapped, this false image creates, and it is, it is displaced ultimately on this other signifier. This is the sort of the, the, the repressing representative, this, this last bit. And it means that we are taking the representation and the image and it is being placed on desire and desire is pushing us in this direction. So it's all fucked up. Uh, desire becomes displaced into this fucked up signified. This problem overall basically doesn't basically prohibit incest. Instead, it creates the image of incest and places desire trapped within it that's constantly pushing. And it's one of the reasons that it causes, you know, massive amounts of neurotic, psychotic, other behaviors uh, to the question of the sentence that Rimka uh, is referencing uh, inside of this, which is, this is what we already see in psychosis, where the intrusion of the complex into consciousness, according to the traditional criterion, did not, to be sure, alleviate the repression of desire. The, the intrusion of the complex into consciousness, uh, when we tell someone that they have an Oedipus complex, it doesn't fix them. It doesn't, doesn't alleviate it because we're still dealing with this paralogism ultimately. All of that is a very fucking long-winded way to come back here to what Ken was saying, that this is the paralogism, again, sort of showing its face, but we're now talking about, you know, the alliant, we're talking about the, the, the family, the familial, the filiative, and the way that desire is sort of trapped and played with inside of that, or in this case, production, because production is the manifestation of desire inside of the second or the, the, the molar uh, uh, regime. That is my long-winded fucking explanation. That's probably too much.
was I far off with anything? Those of you who've been here and like, cause I'm trying to condense a whole bunch of shit we talked about because it's, there's a lot coming to this and there's a lot that's being taken over by this because we're now really diving into how things work at a societal level, how our production or desires are co-opted at a societal level, which is a whole other fucking thing now. What changes singularly in the surface organization of representation is the relationship between voice and graphism. It is the despot who establishes the practice of writing. The most ancient authors saw this clearly. It is the imperial formation that makes graphism into a system of writing in the proper sense of the term. Legislation, bureaucracy, accounting, and collection of taxes, the state monopoly, imperial justice, the functionary's activity, historiography, everything is written in the despot's procession. Let us return to the paradox that emerges from the analyses of Leroy Gorhan. Primitive societies are oral, not because they lack a graphic system, but because, on the contrary, the graphic system in these societies is independent of the voice. It marks signs on the body that respond to the voice, react to the voice, but that are autonomous and do not align themselves on it. In return, barbarian civilizations are written not because the voice has been lost, but because the graphic system has lost its independence and its particular dimensions, has aligned itself on the voice, and has become subordinated to the voice, enabling it to extract from the voice a deterritorialized abstract flux that it retains and makes reverberate in the linear code of writing. In short, graphism in one and the same movement begins to depend on the voice and induces a mute voice from on high or from the beyond, a voice that begins to depend on graphism. It is by subordinating itself to the voice that writing supplants it. Quite interesting. Because we uh, just had our Derrida reading group, and uh, that's someone who's mentioned uh, just at the beginning of the next paragraph, and here with this graphism becomes... Uh, dependent on the voice because um, one of uh, Derrida's big critiques in grammatology is that in Saussure's semiology and his understanding of the sign and of the written language is that it's just representational of another order that it is not um, autonomous in the sense it is representing the voice the the presence of, of something else the, the phoneme the metaphysical presence so to speak and it's just a vehicle for this, uh, but not a genuine one. So by that, the graphism here in analogy becomes uh, the vehicle for the presence of the despot, uh, who can now reach through this medium uh, as something like this metaphysical entity, even though uh, some people may have never seen that despot, uh, the king in all of their life. Um, for example, uh, in, a, in a vast kingdom. Um, he's always present within everything. Uh, and uh, it reminded me also of the uh, Korean written language, uh, Hangul, which was created by a famous king there um, because uh, the Chinese uh, letters were too complicated to uh, be learned by uh, all different castes of people. So he invented a very uh, 
simplified version of this uh, so that everyone uh, even uh, on the fields and, and in every system uh, could learn writing but uh, in, in in the same way it is not only something that is liberating but through this uh, the people got uh, connected more because now they had a unified written language uh, that is also uh, that which uh, now is transporting to uh, every uh, last part of of the land the the word of the despot by uh, um, written letters that are uh, then not only uh, read uh, in, in a village by uh, someone who was deliver delivering this letter, but uh, they could uh, just be placed there on the marketplace, for example, and everyone had to read the new forms of, uh, of uh, law, for example, on um, aspects of taxation. So uh, everything became integrated in this reach, uh, in the symbolic reach of the despot and its uh, system of representation. That's a really great explanation of it. I think I made the joke last time that in America, a very easy version of this is if I were to just type out the words, we the people, uh, what voice is saying it? Like it's, it's just a, a simple thing. And in, in America, the answer is the founding fathers, everyone. No matter what I type it in, what handwriting, it doesn't even fucking matter. Just saying we the people in this, that's what it means. It means the founding fathers are speaking to you with a mute voice through those words, which is... And when you spend a little bit of time thinking about it, it's kind of fucking wild. Um, but it's absolutely uh, Deridian. Deridian? Deridian? I like that. I've never said it that way. I like it. It's very Deridian um, in the setup. Because I think um, he would just flat out, isn't it everything he, <laughs> everything he said that uh, all writing uh, is uh, ultimately on a voice that is absent? And it, it, like you said, they oh. mention them. Um, no, it, it's not the, the only thing, because for Derrida, there is this archaic writing. But that's a whole other story. Uh, you could uh, bring this together, maybe with the body without organs and, and desiring machines, etc. But um, for, for Derrida, it's just this, this problem of looking at writing as, as something that is just uh, derived from the phonetic language, because it is now something that makes... Uh, assumed presence that is there and and uh, carrying some sort of truth or some sort of uh, revelation, universality and and uh, presence within it uh, that is just carried by this and that uh, there is no genuine way of writing of of difference that is producing even this this form of uh, identity and of presence, as he says, uh, which is RK writing. Um, this this pure form of of uh, productive active movement uh, of uh, bringing forth traces or traces that even bring forth this this aspect of spatial differentiation and uh, temporal um, deferring uh, by which we even can uh, even think or, or which even constitute the the form of um, thinking in forms of identity and difference. And that there is no inherent uh, despotic rule, for example, of the presence of the voice of some transcendental field, some lived presence in a Husserlian sense, or a metaphysical entity like a god, a king, uh, or just 
a pure moment of uh, truth that is then um, transformed and degenerated by writing it. Was was there a Der Derrida reading group this morning? Were you in that? Yeah. All right. There we go. Okay. <laughs> it's like that's really good recall today. Um, no, and we'll, we'll get to that. That's a fantastic explanation. Thank you. <laughs> we also have a Derrida reading group, by the way, if you want to check our, our chats and announcements. Um, um, but so on this, uh, please. Is that Derrida reading uh, on um, Discord and on this it's same channel? It's, it's in our partner server. Uh, the, the link is uh, inside of the announcements. Uh, we have a... Uh, continental philosophy server run by ken and a few others uh here who are admins uh for things that are not saying Derrida's is not within the scope some of the writings are it's we try to keep things tighter inside of this uh server so the continental reading group uh, has just a ton of different ones uh and there's a Derrida one every monday i believe tried am i right yeah i tried post it there you go that's the, mm -hmm. the the server um yeah we are meeting right before enter oedipus every uh, Tuesday. It makes for a long four hours, I'll tell you that. Um, but uh, Jean-Claire asks, is this like propaganda or Orwell's Ingsoc, the language of doublethink? It's, it's less that. Think instead about how voice and language and writing operate and how they produce meaning within all the different elements of how they work. The very specific setup here they're talking about is uh, barbarian civilizations have are written not because the voice has been lost. The voice, as we talked about before, spoken word versus graphism. Graphism, which doesn't uh, align to any specific phonetic, but instead graphism applies to Im images, uh, uh, cave writings, uh, 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 symbols, deeply symbolic versus this is a phonetic language where now I'm uh, I'm placing the language or the spoken word in a place of privilege by serving it underneath. But that also does this other thing, as they say, it's by subordinating itself to voice that writing ultimately supplants it because now voice means specific things and words are utilized specific ways. And now we're suddenly in a place where it's no longer that I'm telling a story, it's that I'm reading words. And it's no longer that I'm drawing out or, or being symbolic in how my graphism works. I am now writing those words. There's one way to say things, one way to speak. And uh, it's not that they are disconnected anymore. This does play into how propaganda operates abso-fucking-lutely. Um, and they'll get into that kind of in the next few, but uh, uh, that's kind of, I'd, I'd lean more that direction that they're, they're talking about that at this point. But the next paragraph, I mean, they make the next leap. So I'll just jump to that. Uh, to Triad's point, Jacques Derrida is correct in saying that every language presupposes a writing system from which it originates, if by that he means the existence and the connection of some sort of graphism, writing in the largest sense of the term. He is also right in saying that within writing in the narrow sense, hardly any breaks can be established between pictographic, ideogrammic, and phonetic procedures. There is always and already an alignment on the voice, at the same time as a substitution for the voice, and phonetism is never all-powerful, but is also always ready, always already begun to labor and elaborate the mute signifier. 
He is again correct in linking writing to incest in a mysterious fashion, but we see nothing in this link that would lead us to conclude in favor of the constancy of an apparatus of psychic repression operating in the manner of a graphic machine capable of performing as well by means of hieroglyphics as by phonemes. For there is indeed a break that changes everything in the world of representation between this writing in the narrow sense and writing in the broad sense, that is, between two completely different orders of inscription. A graphism that leaves the voice dominant by being independent of the voice while connecting with it, and a graphism that dominates or supplants the voice by depending on it in various ways and subordinating itself to the voice. The primitive territorial sign is self-validating. It is a position of desire in a state of multiple connections. It is not a sign of a sign, nor a desire of a desire. It knows nothing of linear subordination and its reciprocity. Neither pictogram nor ideogram, it is rhythm and not form, zigzag and not line, artifact and not idea, production and not expression. Let us try to summarize the differences between these two forms of representation, territorial and imperial. That's going to be a big fucking thing real fast here, so I'm going to stop there. Um, it's, it's a lot of that was actually just expanding on what we sort of just talked through. Um, what questions does anyone have, please? Uh, ask away. Uh, Jan Claire asks, is there an example of this idea? They're, they're going to be getting into examples. Um, it's just, it's not really possible for us to go back and think about it because we live in a place where this is kind of already done and, and assumed. Um, the link between writing and incest, they will absolutely, well, specifically between the Oedipus complex, not necessarily incest, but how representation works is again, what we're really discussing here. Um, it's not so much incest that they're going back, oh, people want to fuck their moms because of writing. Not so much. Uh, the Oedipus complex and the way that it displaces desire and fucks with desire specifically in what they're getting at here. So uh, to go back, they're talking in this last end of this paragraph, the primitive territorial sign is self-validating. It is a position of desire in a state of multiple connections. The primitive territorial sign is pre-connection of language, not even as we understand it, where people can read out a story as they look at it. Uh, I think back to Stargate and they have all the hieroglyphics and he's reading it like it's a tale as if it's all words. That's not quite how that operates. Uh, this is long ago, a symbol that was drawn, cave wall, the graphism, whatever. This is directly connecting because it doesn't touch language. It doesn't touch meaning. It's not translatable. It's directly connecting to the things that it has to. It is pure image without voice, uh, I think is a way I'd describe it. Does that make sense to anyone? Is that a, acceptable or am I saying stupid shit now? Gonna yeah, point. it's not bound yet to a specific uh, structure of repre uh, representing uh, the voice yeah. because it's uh, more vaguely playing with concepts and images like in, uh, as Jen Claire wrote, um, that these images are invoking stories, connections, but they are not um, expressing them in a very linear form, like a law text, for example. You have then in in um, the big um, religions of our time, uh, where you can find this very uh, intriguing structures of uh, of uh, 
abstract laws and and uh, voices that are made present again. Yeah, it's it's um, they they call it this uh, like self valid. It's it's a sign. It's not a sign of a sign nor a desire of a desire. It is the thing, and it's almost uh, I don't know how else to say it. it you, you someone would apperceive it instantaneously. Uh, there's no right. there's no uh, hey I'm looking at. Uh, I've got my bottle of water here, and I see on the symbol it said that symbol, and I know what that means. It means Dota. I, I'm drinking from my Dota water bottle, which is this game, which is this thing, which is a representation of representation. Represent. There's layers to words, layers to written word or spoken word. Now, it's it's a sign of a sign of a sign of a sign, or a desire of a desire of a desire of a desire. This shift from the primitive, which is direct fucking desire, boom, right there. Hey, it's there there you go to signs of signs of signs is a significant shift. Um, and it's only through this, are we able to get to the point where the repressing representative is able to even operate? So you're saying it begins with uh, these desires that are, um, that are, there are already structures in the, uh, and in the, in that oral tradition, but then it becomes, uh, you know, uh, reinforced in the uh, written language of, you know, like um, like becomes a mythology. You know, at first it was in the oral tradition, but it becomes uh, written down. You know, with the language that later they. But then uh, there are already like mythologies of these structures, right? And oh, that's right. How, yes. Is that how the oracles are also? Uh, you know, absorb them and into those oracles, they 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 continue to promote this uh, these truths about the about these, uh, you know, despotic structures. Right. In these territorial representations, we have already a, 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 some sort of mystical understanding uh, and thinking, uh, something that is more vaguely um, concerned with, with uh, magical causation, with, with images uh, and uh, some cults of, of fetishes. So uh, in this mystical thinking, there is not yet this this notion of uh, mere representation of of something that is just a vehicle for for something else or just a symbol. For example, uh, an image of a person, uh, even though it may be not very realistic to our uh, eyes, or of some animal, uh, is used in rituals. Is uh, something that that is invoking all kinds of stories that is used uh, and not only read. Uh, and and uh, it's we have still in our society uh, some uh, reminiscence of of that because we we still don't tend to to uh, for example step on the photography uh, of a person uh, we we know because we associate it with this person and we would think this is a bad omen or maybe something bad happens to this person. Uh, so so uh, you would not uh, spit on the image of a loved one. Uh, or an effigy of them. Uh, but in this more imperial representations, uh, things become unified because people, for example, invent forms of bureaucracy. It, uh, uh, it really doesn't have to be a, a full uh, developed written system yet, but maybe it's uh, something as accounting uh, and, and something uh, like uh, simple signs that lead uh, um, your way in the city or, or stuff like that. So you have this more unified and enframed 
um, expressions and and units of sense that now become um, related to a, a very enclosed central system of a despot that uh, overlooks this this rule. So you cannot express yourself in this sense very freely, very poetically in the sense of creating new forms of sense and meaning all the time but you have to refer to a still uh, to already existing form of rules of conventions of taboos uh, that are uh, constantly present in this society and shaping every form of sense making uh, sense making and and uh, referencing and uh, production of meaning at least that's how I explain it's it. It's a hundred percent. That's it's spot on. I, I another way to describe it because again, it's it's tough for us to talk about because we live in a place where where writing and words and spoken words are already like intertwined. But let's say that I wasn't going to record this audio. Let's say that I were to. Uh, here's what we're going to do, guys. I've got this AI program. What it's going to do is it's going to record us and transcribe us into written word, and then we're going to translate it into another language and then back. That process through the entire thing, if we're aware of it, and we would be, I'd tell everyone, the language you'd use would be very different. You wouldn't you know, make guesses or say things that are overly complex. You would necessarily make sure that what you're saying can be communicated because it's important that the end result, you're, you're, the, the thing you produce, the process that ends is the thing you want. If that's the case, let's pull back because you're already doing that. Everything I'm saying necessarily for sense making to be done relies on generalized signification of all the words I'm using to the words you're using to the words anyone else is using. Now that over time can switch and change, but when you add writing to that and when the voice sort of becomes, as they say, uh, subservient to this and uh, by when writing becomes subservient to it, uh, to the voice, writing actually supplants it. Writing becomes, this is the word. The word means this. And suddenly you have a muted sort of displaced voice from on high that's speaking it. And the words that are used at any given time are related back to that writing. And so it keeps us inside of a very specific system of representation that we're even allowed to communicate within. Just like my weird nightmare thing, I, I, we're here talking and using language. If we were to be translating this or putting it in written word, it changes everything. And we are doing that sort of at a base level. And we need to be like, that's their argument that they're coming to is like, this is the challenge is now we're talking about representations of representations of representations of representations. And that's, that's not good. That's not good for us. Um, it gets us to a place where we have signs of signs of signs of signs layers. And this is how we get the displaced represented that without this process, uh, the Oedipus complex couldn't exist as a repressing mechanism, uh, which it is. And that's the sort of argument uh, through a lot of this. Please. It seems to control Oedipus seems to, um, I don't know, displace one's desire, control one's desire, whatever through, um, through controlling memory. Like, so, cause you know, what the psychoanalysts are getting at and what Toulouse and Guattari are talking about seem to be pretty similar. It's just there's there's a spot at the beginning that Toulouse and Guattari don't like. And that spot at the beginning is that one's desire is the desire of the other. So one's desire is is marked by this traumatic moment 
where there's a difference between your body as, you know, this, this thing that is that you haven't uh, placed any signifiers on yet. And then your body as, um, as an object of desire for the other as a name. And so then there becomes like a split there between the word and the thing. And then that split repeats itself through the rest of the process. Um, the issue there is that, I mean, it seems common sense that like the most traumatic thing. So even if their idea is that like tra trauma dictates development or something like that, um, in a, in the broadest sense that, that doesn't have to be like the, uh, like, it seems like the most intense trauma would be the one that dictates it. Not the, not the earliest per se. Um, but so that's the problem, right? The process is the same. So you get deterritorialization and re-territorialization with both, but, but marking that surface with a specific code with a no, um, so that, that difference between the word and the thing ends up being the mother's desire, right? in this line of thinking. And then the mother's desire is supposed to be like for the father or for something else. And that's like the difference between what Freud's getting at with the penis and the phallus. And, um, well, real quick though, I just want to add, because I think you're right for them when they, when we say memory here though, they're talking about inscription. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same. So it's, it's, it's and, very much them driving towards how these memories operate how they work, how signification even operates. And uh, I know you're, you're in our Logic of Sense groups and anyone who's been joining us through this or the last one, last read through this, the creation of those singularities and partial object connections that allow us to have the signification that allow these large tapestries of meaning and sense to sort of be produced. Um, it's all of these things are ultimately an inscription process or a memory creation process. I, I'm gonna go use the restroom. I'll be back in two minutes. Please continue, Ken. I mean, speaking of um, logic of sense, he's, it's, they're saying uh, uh, bodies. So, and if I recall correctly, they like sort of say that bodies are like, they pair bodies with causes. Um, so it's almost like uh, in this despotic mode, uh, graphism becomes the cause of the voice or yeah, the voice becomes an effect of graphism. Like y'all were saying about these representations and signs on top of, of signs because you get this overcoding. And I guess graphism just is also generally alluding to this coding process. Is that right? So is graphism, you know, like if you apply it to uh, logic of a sense, would that be the, um you know, the, the state of affairs, uh, you know, uh, seems like it would be, they would be the cause of the uh, incorporeal, uh, the, you know, but the propositions, you know, are, it seems like they, they have a, aren't the propositions the signifiers? So wouldn't get graphism be, be the signifiers of the incorporeal, the propositions? 
Yeah, it seems like. Uh, I wish I could answer your question, but I can't. I'm like a little bit familiar, but I ended up dropping off of the group. Yeah, there's a kind of a relationship there with this. JK had a question. Yeah. Please. Because in the uh, logic of sense, there's a kind of circularity in when it comes to the, uh, you know, language and the use of propositions, right? Uh, between signifiers and the signified and, and the, uh, you know, um, state of affairs and uh, denotation and manifestation. So there's a kind of circularity there. And, and that isn't graphism. You know, if we think about graphism in this context and apply it over to the logic of sense, isn't that where, where graphism operates in that kind of circularity mode and circular mode? You know, that's a great the, connection. That is a great yeah. connection. Yeah. So, you know, so it's like a you know that circularity is like kind of like the trap of uh, of uh, you know language and you know, uh, what they're talking about here, you know. How um, you know process of representation and, uh, and territorialization. Just trying to draw some connections. Oh no, it's it's. I think it's spot on. And you know the the field of uh, the transcendental field in logic of sense. I think, which is the field in which all of the singularities, which are single points of contact that make up the series, are very much the BWO. Like they, a lot of uh, logic of sense, you can see a lot of the early thoughts and the early understandings of these things. But that's a great connection I hadn't even made. It's fantastic. Um, I do want to move on to the next paragraph, which is going to go through a lot of actually what we just discussed, but in their language uh, to talk through the two forms of representation, how it is shifts from the territorial to the imperial, because I think it'll help continue this discussion that we're having. <sighs> In the first place, territorial representation is made up of two heterogeneous elements, voice and graphism. <clears throat> the former is like the representation of words constituted in lateral alliance, while the lateral is like the representation of things, of bodies, established in extended filiation. The former acts on the latter, while the latter reacts on the former. Each element having its own particular force that is connoted along with that of the other, so as to perform the great task of germinal intense repression. <clears throat> what is repressed, in fact, is the full body as the foundation of the intense earth, which must yield its place to the socius in extension, into which the intensities in question pass or fail to pass. The full body of the earth must assume an extension in the socius and as the socius. The primitive socius covers itself in this manner with a network wherein one is continually jumping from words to things and from bodies to appellations, according to the extensive requirements of the system in its length and its width. What we call the order of connotation is an order in which the word, as a vocal sign, designates something, but where the thing designated is no less a sign because it is furrowed by a graphism that is connoted in conjunction with the voice. The heterogeneity, the divergence, the disequilibrium of the two elements, vocal and graphic, is resolved by a third element, the visual, the eye. It might be said of this eye that it sees the word, it sees it, does not read it, insofar as it evaluates the suffering caused by the graphism. 
Jean-Francois Lyotard, has attempted to describe such a system in another context where the word has only a designating function but does not of itself constitute the sign. What becomes a sign is rather the thing or body designated as such, and so far as it reveals an unknown facet described on it traced by the graphism that responds to the word. The gap between the two elements is bridged by the eye, which sees the word without reading it inasmuch as it appraises the pain emanating from the graphism applied to the flesh itself. The eye jumps. To read the footnote, Leotard reestablishes the overly neglected rights of a theory of pure designation. He shows the irreducible gap between the word and the thing in the relationship of designation that connotes them. By virtue of this gap, it is the thing designated that becomes the sign by revealing an unknown fact as a hidden content. Words are not themselves signs, but they transform into signs, the things or bodies they designate. At the same time, it is, designating, it is the designating word that becomes visible, independently of any writing reading, by revealing a strange ability to be seen, not read. See Leotard Discourse, figure, page 4182, quote, Words are not things, but as soon as there is a word, the object designated becomes a sign, which means precisely that it conceals a hidden content within its manifest identity, and that it reserves another face for another view focused on it, which perhaps will never be seen, end, end quote, but which in return will be viewed in the word and itself. It's a complicated way to say that the... the despotic machine controls what you think <laughs> by like by predefining the thing yeah uh, essentially by having the words and all of that it's no longer that we're dealing with the thing directly but instead a once or twice or ten times removed sign of the thing that uh you know itself no longer has the the direct power of the element itself so would an example of this be the construction of the categories of like nature versus artificial and the ways in which we like construct uh, nature and the world as like a, like a, a standing reserve, I guess, to use the like Heideggerian terms uh, of something that's related to the socius rather than uh, uh, sort of it's, it's uh its basis or its uh, its body. Well, so specifically with this, the the thing they were going through in this is the territorial representation that dealt with voice and graphism. And we have to remember, we have to go back to the sort of theater of cruelty, the reality of cruelty that is inscription in this time. Because, uh, you know, as we talked about, when someone comes of age and, uh, you know, they're going to be made into a man or woman or whatever their role is the the debt that they now or will forever owe their tribe is literally carved into them the graphism happens on the body and this is why they keep using the phrase in here the eye and they keep coming back to it uh, it evaluates the suffering caused by the graphism uh, this element in the sort of territorial time is what is is the the witness of that is essentially the payment of debt or the the reality uh the the agreement 
the eye is part of this, that as it's carved in, as I'm scarified, that I'm going to be a warrior, that I'm a man in the tribe or whatever, uh, forever, everyone remembers this. But if I don't experience the pain, I haven't learned it. And so that that back and forth, the seeing of the word, the one, the, the, the element that it, it's, again, not reading it, but evaluating the suffering, evaluating the real, evaluating the understanding that I, that the person being inscribed upon has of the reality of the system, the, the gravitas, the power. This is the important part that the I does. It kind of goes away a little bit, we'll say. Um, but that that drive that they're pushing back for is this direct connection that once was had between the words I said, there's no words written, uh, but the spoken word versus graphism and the direct sort of uh, uh, connote, I hate that word, they use it so much, that's literally pointing at the things. That's how I understand it. Yeah, I meant specifically the section where they say, uh, like, what is repressed is the full body uh, as the foundation of the intense earth, which must yield its place to the socius and extension. Uh, so is that, like... Uh, a way of like making yes. it so that the body okay. is what's the only thing that's visible um or or the bodies of the tribes or each other uh because the the socius um that is sort of pushed underneath that ultimately does maintain and fall back on all production and become that thing is it's important that the full body sort of be uh, taken apart uh, how to how to put this god it's a really good question of how to phrase my response to that so uh, the the underlying socius, the thing that is responsible for production or that all production gets assigned to, uh, the full body of the earth in the primitive, the full body of the despot and uh, the uh, imperialist or the despotic. Uh, what is Im important is that, uh, I'll just quote directly, um, the, the, this element must yield its place to the socius in extension into which the intensities in question pass or fail to pass. The intensities being the elements or uh, the division of things, I suppose would be a way to put it. The, the full body of the earth being everything needs to ultimately be divided in order for us to, you know, break things up in order for us to have discussion or really cognize or even make sense of elements. It's uh, not to go back to difference and repetition, but this is kind of like really what a lot of that is, is about. And so, the socius being the full body, the full body being the thing that's repressed, but instead the socius being the sort of element that comes out of it that is there in extension is the thing uh, which, uh, again, takes care of all production and eliminates that. The phrasing they use here is the to do this, the primitive socius covers itself in this manner with a network wherein one is continually jumping from words to things and bodies to appellations according to the extensive requirements of the system in its length and its width. Uh, the system being my essentially direct things that I'm related to, my affiliative or my alliances. They're the things I'm able to see. My sisters, my mother, uh, my tribe, the people around me, the debts that I have are all right in my area. And this network is me jumping from uh, uh, words to things, but not from words to words to words to words, for example. Uh, it's very, very much directed. Um, the, the separation here is when it starts making that next play where we become disconnected and suddenly the the elements of, uh, which we'll get into, I don't even think we've gotten to the despotic yet, um, 
because we're still dealing with graphism at this point and just purely the territorial. And it's this element. I'm going to read the next paragraph. I have to. Sorry. I'm going to just jump to the next paragraph and hopefully I'm able to answer your question there, Raven. Sorry. Um, the magic triangle with its three sides. Voice audition, graphism body, eye pain. Thus sees to us, seems to us to be an order of connotation, a system of cruelty where the word has an essentially designating function, but where the graphism itself constitutes a sign in conjunction with the thing designated, and where the eye goes from one to the other, extracting and measuring the visibility of the one against the pain of the other. Everything in the system is active, enacted, or reacting. Everything is a matter of use or function. So that when one considers the whole of territorial representation, one is struck by the complexity of the networks with which it covers the socius. The chain of territorial signs is continually jumping from one element to another, radiating in all directions, emitting detachments wherever there are flows to be selected including disjunctions, consuming remains, extracting surplus values, connecting words, bodies, and sufferings, and formulas, things, and affects, connoting voices, gra graphic traces, and eyes always in the polyvocal usage, a way of jumping that cannot be contained within an order of meaning, still less with a signifier. And if incest seemed possible to us from this point of view, it is because incest is nothing other than a jump that necessarily fails this jump that goes from appellations to persons, from names to bodies. On the one hand, the repressed this side of, of appellations that do not yet designate persons, but only intensive germinal states. On the other hand, the repressing beyond that only applies appellations to persons by prohibiting persons who answer to the names of sister, mother, father. Between the two, this shallow stream where nothing passes, where the appellations do not adhere to the persons, where the persons elude the graphic actions, <clears throat> the graphic action, and where the eye no longer has anything to see or evaluate, incest, the simple displaced limit, neither repressed nor repressing, but merely the displaced representative desire. From this moment on, it appears indeed that the two dimensions of representation, its surface organization, with the elements voice graphy eye and its in-depth organization with representing instances of desire repressing representation displaced represented share the same fate like a system of correspondences in the heart of a given social machine so we're still in territorial we haven't moved out of territorial yet we're still there really talking through how the direct connections and they use the term conjunctive polyvocal a lot of things because to them the way that they're describing this, people dealt very cleanly with desires as desires were, uh, and and the the sort of direct uh, you know extensions of such things. I'll I'll shut up there and please, uh, Ken, go ahead. Well, I just have a I have a question mark, just a pure question mark in that last sentence that starts with and. Um, whenever they say the repressed this side of the Appalachians that do not yet designate persons, but only intensive germinal states. And on the other hand, the repressing beyond that only applies Appalachians. So, so the first side, what is, what is that? The repressed this side of Appalachians. So the, the two sides of uh, this element that they're talking about, the this side of, and then on the other hand, um, 
the this side of appellations that do not yet designate persons, uh, the but only intensive germinal states, uh, they are uh, how to put. Look, someone has to answer mother. That's the other side. But I have to have someone to call mother. I have to have someone to call sister. I have to have the relations that are in enclosed by such a form, and they're not. Instead, they are intensive germinal states that are very open-ended and kind of go the direction they do. They they don't designate a person. I I call my son Dexter. I don't call him son. But very often you'll hear people say, or especially the more traditional types, yes, son, very well done. Oh, mommy, 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 Dexter, mommy, daddy, everything. Uh, it's 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 normal in that sense. But like that's because we made him call those such things. And we've, again, triangulated. I'm, I'm a terrible father, I guess. I don't know. But um, the, the thing is, in these societies, they don't have such things to call. There's no such thing as a mother. It's an intensive germinal state, the one who gives birth and her cares for. But that shifts just like the wasp and the orchid, who at any time can be becoming one becoming the other. An ant can be playing the role of what we know as mom by breastfeeding or taking care. The mom could go off and decide to, you know, do whatever the fuck she wants. It's, it's, it's not a relative state in the same sense that we have it. And that's the one side. The other side is you need the person who's going to answer towards that and who sees themselves as such a thing. Those are the two sides as I read it. Um, can we uh, equivocate partial objects and bodies here? No. Okay. Well, I was wondering if it made sense to put partial objects or desiring machines on one side and then the name or the word on the other side. So you have, you have mother is non-signified thing and then you have the name of the mother on the other side i i think you could say uh the unconscious on what like if we want to talk about where the line and the sides are i think the subject is what they're talking about i, I think the line would be that the 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 me experiencing subject so on the one side you have the machinations of the machinic unconscious on the other side you have the the molar uh representation of desiring machines within the socius on my side, yes, you could say desiring machines with partial objects connecting. Um, but when they refer to full bodies, this is the the argument they made very early on, uh, is that partial objects are not full bodies, and nor do they have an understanding of what a full body is. The desiring machine doesn't want mom. It doesn't even know what the conception of such a thing is. The, the full body or the body of the mother or anything like that is a representation necessarily. And so on the one side, you have, do they say it jumps goes from appellations to persons, from names to bodies. On the one hand, you have the, they don't designate persons. That's where they're saying desiring machines, but only intensive germinal states. But a body is a full thing. It's, it's a, I want mommy, I want whatever. Desiring machines don't have that. On the other side, I would need someone to call that, and there's no one who calls themselves that or would answer such a call. Those are the two sides. Because representation doesn't even work like that. I can't call anyone. They're not a mom. That's not how it operates. The word and the way representation operates gives us mothers as a whole body, as a thing, as a representation that I'm able to refer to. And if I say, hey, everyone, uh, how's your mom doing? Everyone here has a person they immediately think of and cognize as mom. Or if you were to say, I'm going to call my mom, there's a person you're going to fucking call. Uh 
or, or dad or whatever it is, however it may work out. There's a person you're going to call and you're going to set up that doesn't exist inside of this because, again, the way representation works inside of these systems doesn't play in the same way. Roles don't have the same place. Words don't have the same meaning because they're not written. They're not specific. They're not, they're not limited to the way that we sort of have fucked them together, basically. Yeah, but the way we fuck them together has an effect, and it does mm -hmm. limit, and it does create roles. So then, I mean, maybe not a question to answer now, but it sounds like what you're left with is just naming, like, like territorializing your desire, like naming it something other than what it's already been named. I, I actually don't even know if we could even imagine what it's like to be able to have language that's not tied directly to like a spoken word that's not tied to a language or a structure that's so yeah. deep is written word. Um, it's why it's when we go through the partial objects and talking about, so I always go back to the metaphor of the baby who has no language. Um, and I think it's, it's why psychoanalysts always do too, but like a baby doesn't sit there and go, excellent. Where is mother? Give me the breast. Uh, they just are grasping and connecting and remembering and uh, the, the sensations being recorded over time allow them to sort of form. Oh, this person I call mom. Mom is breastfeeding, rearing, bathing, person walking, driving me around. Like all of those things become what mother is, but they all get captured within what mother is because that's the nature of sort of representation in the written word. They're all mom. Mom's the one who does those things. Um, it's difficult. I, I, I tend to be the one who works. And so it's been tough to have that be the case with my kid. I want to spend time with them and bond and, you know, spend some time eating, take them out. Mom's the one who does those things as far as he's concerned. And because of that, mom means those things. And that's a little bit different than uh, the way it, 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 it would be without such a system of representation. That's, a, that's my reading. I do want to continue in the next paragraph, though. Um, I'm 99% sure we are not getting through this one today. So um, this is going to be a longer one. Hope you guys, hope all of you join next week because this is, this is a longer one. <laughs> um, uh, so we just finished. Uh, the, I'll, I'll read the ending. Uh, from this moment on, it appears indeed that the two dimensions of representation, surface organization with the elements of voice graph EI, and its in-depth organization with representing instances of desiring repressing representation, displaced represented, share the same fate, like a system of correspondences in the heart of a given social machine. Now to continue. All this finds itself overwhelmed in a new destiny, with the despotic machine and imperial representation. In the first place, graphism aligns itself on the voice, falls back on the voice, and becomes writing. At the same time, it induces the voice no longer as the voice of alliance, but as that of the new alliance, a fictitious voice from beyond that expresses itself in the flow of writing as direct filiation. These two fundamental despotic categories are also the movement of graphism that, at one and the same time, subordinates itself to the voice in order to subordinate the voice and supplant it. Then there occurs a crushing of the magic triangle. The voice no longer sings, but dictates, decrees. The graphy no longer dances. It ceases to animate bodies, but is set into writing on tablets, stones, and books. 
The eye sets itself to reading. Writing does not entail, but implies a kind of blindness, a loss of vision, and the ability to appraise. It is now the eye that suffers, although it acquires other functions. Or rather, we are unable to say that the magic triangle is completely crushed. It subsists as a base and as a brick, insofar as the territorial machine continues to function in the framework of the new machine. The triangle has become the base for a pyramid, all of whose sides cause the vocal, the graphic, and the visual to converge towards the eminent unity of the despot. If we call the order of representation in a social system a plane of consistency, it is evident that this plane has changed, that it has become a plane of subordination and no longer one of connotation. And here, in the second place, is the essential. The flattening of the graphy onto the voice has made a transcendent object jump outside the chain, a mute voice on which the whole chain now seems to depend and in relation to which it becomes linearized. The subordination of graphism to the voice induces a fictitious voice from on high, which, inversely, no longer expresses itself except through the writing signs that it emits. Revelation. This is perhaps the first assembling of formal operations that will lead to Oedipus, the paralogism of extrapolation. A flattening out or a set of bi-univocal relations that leads to the breakaway and elevation of a detached objects and the linearization of a chain that derives from this object. Mostly explaining, I think, what we've gone over, I think, quite nicely as well. Um, does anyone here have questions, thoughts, comments, please? So this uh, subordination of writing to uh, voice is basically um, Derrida's idea, right? Do, do graph? Can anyone articulate how graphemes might relate to the abstract machine? Is there any sense there? No. Because it, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like literally like writing, though. Like I get the flavor of like the general notion of law, which is like the also this notion of like coding. Where, yeah, it's like written, but there's also like this implicit, you know, prohibition that floats around in strange situations and whatnot. And then the abstract machine is what's between the orchid and the wasp. If that, does that sound right at all? I, I'm trying to be quiet, so I'm trying to force Triad to talk. Because I think Triad has a better grasp of this. Uh, to me, a lot of what they're starting to get into now is is pulling again from Yelmslev. I don't have the greatest grasp of Yelmslev in general, but when we're talking about a lot of these things in this direction and his view of how uh, language develops and graphemes specifically um, uh, function within his semiotic hierarchy, I think there is a a lot of connections here, but I don't have enough of a yeah. Well, that's, that's that's something we kind of discussed in the Derrida group uh, today as well. Um, but but Kent has a very better grasp of Yamslev. But um, it's a critique of uh, Yamslev that uh, Jacobson and Derrida at the same time bring forth. Although Derrida is also criticizing uh, Jacobson, but Yamslev is 
forcing linguistics in this um, uh, structure that he builds, this very um, algebra of language, as he calls it. Um, and, and this glossosemantics he is developing is just looking at language in this very virtual form as a set of rules, of, of uh, functions, uh, of forms without any uh, aspect of substance or concrete expression, although he is constantly using the term substance and expression, um, uh, but in another way. So he's, he's um, not referring to how language and especially the voice is generated in what context. So everything becomes just this logical and formal structure and is following a set matrix of rules and of places where stuff is and gets its meaning from. Uh, and that's uh, just bracketing out the concrete genesis of um, the uttered voice, for example. Uh, and that's how, um, for example, then uh, the written language is, is just reduced to a set of rules to something that is preset and not constantly developing in, in a game uh in a spiel and and uh creating new forms of meaning and sense all the time and that's um something that that goes over to the written language as well because this is just uh, representing the voice now the voice of the despot uh what his de uh, decree is uh what is traded in the country what is uh declared relevant and there, there is not this free-flowing and constant breaking and, and re-emerging of, of forms of sense um, anymore because everything needs to be integrated in this larger system. As uh, they write here, um, this, this magical triangle is just now a foundation um, for this pyramid. Everything is striving for this, this top point in the hierarchy and is leading to it, even if they don't want to, they are constantly forced back into it um, because they, they, the graphisms cannot, cannot dance in this aspect. And uh, I guess that's uh, some kind of foreshadowing why uh, Deleuze uh, later finds so much interest, uh, interest in the arts because uh, the, the percept and the effect are something that... Uh, are not under the rule of the of the concept in this in this plane uh, and of the organization of the organic in in this uh, form of something that is constantly structuring and enforcing its own rule on uh, the molecular machines that are inhibited within it and and forced to work for it. And I, I would say I, I love all of that. I think um, I think even Yomsev would say that. Uh, you know, Deleuze's take, which is ultimately that it's not so much that Yelmslev is trying to make things too structural, it's that the, the nature of having these things insistent upon each other and the nature of the apparatus that produces meaning within the language as we use it, the written and spoken combination, is by nature itself problematic in that direction. I think Yelmslev even talked at length about how um, the first thing we need to understand is that the written slash spoken word language is he in Pro Proglema of language, he talked about how language is linear. And he contrasts that to 
uh, in a lot of other things, but the way meaning is derived is one thing insists on the next, on the next, on the next, on the next, on the next. And uh, he very much got into this idea of sort of uh, talking about how, what, what would a radial language be? The same way there's mathematics that works, uh, that you can go in that direction and have radial meaning, but that we don't have that option. And I think uh, he even used cave paintings and graphisms from uh, the, the primitive Socius, uh, he didn't call it that, but from that time, he used those as examples of radial meaning, cave paintings where you could start anywhere and go anywhere else, which, again, uh, that's why Yelmslav gets mentioned a lot in uh, Mille Pateau. Um, but I think that very much translates into Yelmslevy stuff. It's a really, it's a really, I, I love Yelmslev's mm -hmm. sort of take on that, but I uh, thank you for that explanation, Trad. Yeah, and I, I guess uh, this image of the pyramid. Uh, is is very important here, and and uh, that they both so Deleuze and Guattari both use these uh, almost geometrical terms because everything becomes flattened in in uh, this manner or flattened on the voice, so things just fall together, become way less complex, uh, way less creative, and um, or in relation to which it becomes linearized. So uh, these things are not any more free-floating, as, as you said, in these uh, images. You can go in any direction, create new forms of meaning. No, it, everything becomes linear, and that's something um, then uh, media theorists like Marshall McLuhan point out in his uh, Gutenberg galaxy, that with this creation of uh, such despotic systems uh, in this uh, anti-Oedipus terms, of, for example, the lit written language and their mechanical reproduction in <clears throat> uh, in the uh, times of uh, uh, in the newer times, uh, the thinking of the people becomes uh, different as well because uh, they are conditioned to think in this linearized form of the written text, uh, and that something needs to be uh, that a text just needs to represent a form of spoken language in every text that doesn't do this in our cultures uh, uh, in, in lineage of the uh, Indo-European language route um, is something that is seen as utter nonsense or just uh, pretentious artsy stuff, for example, that is just playing with, with language and not carrying any meaning. Fantastic explanation. Uh, any questions before I read this last paragraph and then we'll do a discussion and then uh, we'll probably close out for the day and uh, continue next week. Uh, so any comments so far, questions, please ask. Fair enough. It is perhaps at this juncture that the question, what does it mean, begins to be heard and that problems of exegesis prevail over problems of use and of efficacy. The emperor, the god, what does he mean? In place of segments on the chain that are always detachable, a detached partial object on which the whole chain depends. In place of a polyvocal graphism flush with the real, a biunivocalization forming the transcendent dimension that gives rise to a linearity. In place of non-signifying signs that compose the networks of a territorial chain, a despotic signifier, signifier from which all the signs uniformly flow in a deterritorialized flow of writing. Men have even been seen drinking this flow. Andres Zimpleni shows how, in certain regions of Senegal, 
Islam superimposes a plane of subordination on the old plane of connotation of animist values. Quote, the divine or prophetic word, written or recited, is the foundation of this universe. The transparency of the animist prayer yields to the opacity of the rigid Arab verse, speech, rigidities, into formulas whose power is ensured by the truth of the revelation and not by a symbolic or incantatory, incantatory efficacy. The Muslim holy man's learning refers to a hierarchy of names, verses, numbers, and corresponding beings, and if necessary, the verse will be placed in a bottle filled with pure water. The verse water will be drunk, one's body will be rubbed with it, and one's hands will be washed with it. End quote. Writing. The first deterritorialized flow, drinkable on this account, it flows from the despotic signifier. But what is the signifier in the first instance? What is it in relation to the non-signifying territorial signs when it jumps outside their chains and imposes, superimposes, a plane of subordination on their plane of eminent connotation? The signifier is the sign that has become a sign of the sign, the despotic sign having replaced the territorial sign, having crossed the threshold of deterritorialization. The signifier is merely the deterritorialized sign itself. The sign made letter. Desire no longer dares to desire, having become a desire of desire, a desire of the despot's desire. The mouth no longer speaks, it drinks the letter. The eye no longer sees, it reads. The body no longer allows itself to be engraved like the earth, but prostrates itself before the engravings of the despot the region beyond the earth, the new full body. Ken, you got anything to say about the master signifier in Lacan at all with this one? Feels like it's squarely yeah. pointed. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I just, I, mean, I, just, uh, I, just, I just like this, how they kind of broke down, because they started in the sort of, uh, again, the old the territorial socius now moving to despotic, talking through how desire manufactures meaning, how manufacturing meaning changes meaning, and ultimately how signs become dependent on the system of writing, which once again moves things to the despot. And now we can have a conversation of, yes, the master signifier is a thing. Here's how this works. Here's where this comes from. And it feels like it's almost directly talking to uh, uh, Lacan and the, the, Lacan's entire semiotics or concept of signification am i far off no i mean i think it hits the the masculine sexuation diagram to a t where you need some sort of exclusion that you make transcendent to be able to like justify your own position so man only exists in so far as the woman exists but we all know what lacan has to say about that Right. Um, but so what the um, what a master signifier can do is it can maintain a chain of signification, even whenever the signified is missing. Um, and that's this part about drinking the letter and whatnot. Um, so a more down to earth way of doing this is where people. Um, people become, you know, spokespeople for 
movements they don't fully understand, I guess. So what you're doing is just propagating a prohibition and a rule. And that's sort of what's organized your your voice, if you will, is a uh, prefigured inscription um, that's meaningless. And the only thing that holds it together is because I said so. Well, and, and part of that also is the, the earlier part they say here, uh, the territorial chain, a despotic signifier from which all the signs uniformly flow in a deterritorialized flow of writing. This idea that our universalized conception of our writing is deterritorialized and, and presumes that like a, a master, better, for lack of a better term, a, a master signifier, a despot that announces these are the meanings. This is where we start from. The, the chain of signification begins with me. You know, that process uh, is fascinating. And a really great yeah, way to sort of talk through how meaning sort of becomes generative in these chains of signification. I mean, I'm just curious how they would then respond because, I mean, the chain of signification for Lacan begins with the, um, the difference between the name and the image. So, my guess, and I, I don't know if they actually do directly confront such a thing, but my, my version of that for them would be uh, it, it's, it's not that, that it's about the representation of the image and how that is ingested by the machinic unconscious and that the machinic unconscious, how it takes things in, how the eye operates, the process of all of this, depending upon the recording structure with which things are ultimately recorded is what will determine uh, this process. Uh, they, we will go on. There is no, like the way capital works or the way these things sort of work uh, as we sort of move on, we'll continue this. But their argument very early during the territorial is no, there is no master signifier. That's not even how this operates. It necessitates to have these 90 things, these hundreds of little bits that are all functioning and producing in themselves. And also this power structure that's very particular that that relates meaning in these very, very particular ways through representation that is what allows the master signifier to be a thing. So I don't, I don't think they would say that um, the con's necessarily like wrong in that. It's just that it's not, again, determinant, that it instead is uh, cultural or, or built by this, the sort of situation or the growth of the person, depending on the socius that they're in, based on generalized repression and how representation plays within such things. Well, that makes that makes sense, and I'm still not so sure there's as big of a disagreement. Um, well, I don't think there's almost any disagreement. <clears throat> well, there might be because I don't know if the difference between like the 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 name and the image uh, is a representation or is not. I mean, it sort of is. So you fantasize about the difference between um, like the person in their name like so you you know you know me as uh kin on here and i'm sure you've thought about at some point in time who i am but that's there's going to be a difference there between what you think about me and then like how i'm actually connecting to things in my life and whatnot right so i think they still could be 
Agreeing, because doesn't deterritorialization come first? Well, so, so I do think that generally they're going to be agreeing, and it's not a shock given that Guattari, again, studied under the con, but a lot of what they're talking about here is very specifically that uh, we have the image or the sign and desire no longer dares to desire. Instead, it, it becomes a desire of desire. It becomes sort of uh, impotent for its own desire and that separation of the thing. It's the, the, the core activities that we have are no longer there. The mouth is not the thing that speaks. Instead, it drinks the letter. The eye no longer sees, it reads. It's about the ingestion and taking in of meaning rather than the production of it, I think is a big thing that they're pointing at here. And I don't think Lacan would fight any of that. I think he would disagree in some of their other points, but I think this is Guattari's way of saying, actually, here's why you're right in our time and here's how this got produced in the same way that they would never say that Oedipus complex doesn't exist. They would say, but wait, it's not, it's not determinate of the human condition. Whereas I think Lacan very clearly would say that desire is desiring the desire of the other is determinant of the human condition. They would say, no, that has to do with the power structures and, and working of relation of representation. That would be, for me, that's how I would piece it. Yeah, I don't think Lacan believes you can participate in like the hollow scene without being castrated always already. And so and and so that's the big difference is that I think maybe Lacan thinks he's a realist in starting from there, whereas they're like, no, no, no you don't have to start from there. And um, maybe you don't even have to approach that particular issue where your desire becomes the desire of the other, like you're talking about, where what you're desiring is already another's desire. Um, so you don't have to start with the, the difference in your mother's desire or whatever. Yeah. And so as we're, as things are placed in front of us in this system of inscription, because Again, everything we have in the in the despotic is owned by the despot. It, wives, mothers, land, people, all the stuff is not mine. The, the debt is infinite. All belongs to the despot. As this marries uh, sort of the, the, because there's no economy to that. That's just everything is indebted. It's the way it goes. As everything is placed inside of this power structure and suddenly my affiliative and my alliant forms of everything is completely fucked, now, when I have desires, because I'm seeing them, not seeing, I'm reading what they are. I'm reading what needs to be done. I'm not directly ingesting them the same way that I would via an abstract uh, grapheme, for example, or a, or a, or a painting or a, a cave drawing. I'm not taking it in in the same way. Instead, it's very aimed at. And this is the thing that you want. This is the thing of what it is. And it's defined cleanly. Uh, if we go to logic of sense, uh, I think logic of sense, uh, JK earlier brought it up and connected it. We're talking through, I think, almost identically this stuff in logic of sense. Um, join us next Monday. Because um, as we talk about signification and how meaning is made and how these things are produced inside of different times, like... Like this is, this is that stuff. This is that, oh, it's, this is so interesting. I mean, what's interesting to me is how it seems like you can't fully 
get rid of the despot and the the pull of the paranoia not as long as the the representation is stuck within power structures i think would be the implication of a lot of this and we'll be talking very quickly into the next uh paragraph <coughs> um that's been two hours the next paragraph is a fucking really long one i think it's the entire next page and a little bit more um i want to make sure that we get a chance to fully read it we will continue it next week because where they're going to get into is talking about literally i think the first sentence in the next paragraph is you will never no water will ever cleanse the signifier of its imperial origin like the signifying master or the master signifier pretty much exactly what you just said can can you're never getting rid of the despot now that we have language um as we know it so uh, he's in agreement with uh nietzsche yeah, that we um there's no way of there's no way to get rid of uh the the power structure right it's 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 uh you know it's um part of nature itself right it's part of our nature no uh so specifically they're saying that the power structure as we have it by coming about through the despot here is how it was produced and here is how it's structured it is not determinate of the human condition it was simply not a thing that existed in the primitive socius so it is not a thing that is uh, expected or a thing we have to deal with it's a thing we have to deal with now because in order for us to have signification within our current socius these elements have already been brought together and we must now think of ways to sort of break them apart or move them apart to other things. So I would not say that they would agree with Nietzsche and that power is like not a thing we can get away from, but I would say they would like partially agree and say specifically, as we know language now, as things exist now, these systems and how they produce things and how the power structure within these things produce meaning is actually the trap for desire ultimately that it is the thing that pushes us towards the paranoiac, the way language works. I have this, I give this talk and I still believe it, video games as we know them now are reactionary uh, and they do the same thing. Uh, every video game that you play tells you very quickly what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it and very tight controls. There's not a lot of creativity. You don't have a lot of possibility space in the vast majority of games. As such, they lean towards a hyper-paranoiac reactionary audience, which I shouldn't surprise anyone that that's the fucking case after Gamergate. The the way that these things function pushes people towards that, but it's not inherent to being human. It's not inherent to video games. It's these are the the way structures are developed and built, and this is them breaking it all down. They will get to and in chapter four is very long, and we will spend a great deal of time on it. Specifically, how we can break down our understanding of representations to change how power is structured within it and to actually get at back to this idea of desire being able to desire, uh, which we aren't allowed to do anymore. Sorry for the ramble, JK. That, that was my answer. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that, yeah, according to uh, Nietzsche, and I, I think uh, Deleuze agrees that the, uh, you know, uh, in order for you to, um, you know, escape from that kind of, um, you know, power structure. It's, it's up to the individual to channel that, that's, uh, that kind of power, will to power, you know, uh, in some kind of a, uh, you know, artistic or creative endeavor. Right? Yes. So if you're looking at will to power as, as desire or an analogy, analogy for uh, desire or Newman 
or however you want to phrase it, uh, libido, 100%. Like that's that's where they for sure connect, at least in, in right. my eyes, for sure. Right. It is the free up the unconscious and and away from those, uh, you know, uh, uh, corrupting, uh, you know, despotic power structures. Which, which they believe is representation in general as it operates today, which is a hell of an enemy, to be frank, <laughs> as far as enemies go. There's a lot of representation around. Uh, any last comments or questions? Uh, and uh, we will we will go to next week. Uh, leave it open for 10 seconds of silence. If anyone wants to jump in, now would be the time, then I'll, I'll cut out. Hey, thank you, everyone. Yep. Thank, thank all of you very much. Uh, next week, please join us. We will continue from the bottom of apparently 2M. I hate this fucking PDF so much. Um, uh, 206. We will continue from the bottom of 206. 2M. Um, and uh, with that, I will say uh, thank all of you very much.